Hey, everyone out there, and thanks again for joining us here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. My name is Amy Ho. I'm an ER doctor and also the ASAP Now assistant editor and your host of this podcast. So this episode is extra, and I mean extra because it really takes us beyond the traditional hospital walls of emergency medicine. So first, we will talk about where technology is taking us where the blend of chat GPT and emergency medicine can come together. Are we bound for a chat EM? Maybe. We chat with Stanford doctors, Dr. John Dayton and Dr. Christian Rose about how they're thinking of leveraging large language models, in other words, chat GPT, in clinical practice, medical education, healthcare administration, and pearls for how you can take it to your next shift. So after that, we take you beyond the hospital walls in a super literal way as we follow Dr. Nathan Jones, who's taking it to space in a way. Now, Dr. Jones is an ER doctor from Illinois who's just embarked on a year-long study with NASA. The study is called Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog, or CHAPIA, which is actually a simulation of what crew members may experience in a mission to Mars before we actually send astronauts into space. So we got the chance to chat with Dr. Jones, actually, as he was doing his onboarding and training at NASA, right before he entered his 3D printed simulation habitat. And he chatted with us about how in the world he got involved with this and what it means to be the mission's medical officer. So lots to cover this episode, and it will be an absolute blast. So let's go ahead and kick it off. Hey everyone at ASAP Now. So thanks for joining me today with actually a panel interview. And we are talking large language models, which um, isn't something we go into in the common ER vernacular, but think ChatGPT for emergency medicine, which is actually the exact article title um, that we're discussing today. So we're discussing the article Leveraging Large Language Models like ChatGPT in Emergency Medicine which was written by Dr. John Dayton, the Fellow of Med Innovation and Clinical Instructor at Stanford, Dr. Christian Rose, who is a clinical informaticist and assistant professor at Stanford, and Dr. Nick Ashenberg, who unfortunately wasn't able to join us, but is absolutely a contributor on this article. So we wanted to give a shout out to Nick, um, who is clinical assistant professor at Stanford. So John and Christian, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. So um, I'm super biased because I'm also in the informatics space. Um, And since ChatGPT came out, I have been totally using it um, to like remind myself, you know, of, you know, like what is Bichette's disease? How does that impact like possible like cardiac symptoms, like all that kind of stuff. Um, So I loved your article. Um, I wanted to take a step back, though, and just talk, you know, what is ChatGPT? What is LLM? Um, and then walk through like why this should matter to an ER doctor. So Christian, we will start with you. Um, so help us just summarize what is a large language model for like our you know typical ER doctors. All right. I mean, just a small, just a small task for sure. Um, but <laughs> as you're saying, you know, we don't talk about it's not 
traditional to talk about LLMs in EM, but quite honestly, it's not traditional to talk about large language models or LLMs in like all of medicine until kind of recently. Um, other than, you know, like Google working on its uh, medical version of which I have some friends who have been working at Google and on various of the other uh, open AI projects. It is pretty new for everyone and is changing the way everyone interacts with information right now. Um, and so it's, you know, a vernacular that we're all probably going to get really familiar with over a pretty short time. Um, but just to generally talk about what it is, uh, people tend to talk a lot about AI versus machine learning versus deep learning in medicine. The biggest thing to think about is most of machine learning is pattern recognition and the ability to identify those patterns or predict um, what will happen next from a series of events that happened in the past. The latter is really a good way of thinking about LLMs. And some people mention thinking about them as a sort of, you know, really, really um, robust autocomplete. And essentially what that means is um, they're very good at understanding uh, natural language and word usage um, and the ability to predict if I said, you know, um, what is Bichette's disease, it would look through the internet um, and have a huge database so that it turns all of the language and sentences into large uh, matrices, essentially, of like words, and says, oh, when someone asks the question, what is Bichette's disease, the answer tends to be, and then I would probably need to Google search again, but I feel like I'm, uh, you know, Bichette's is making me think of something with uh, autoimmune disorders. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, basically you'll get the response based on how likely the sentence that answers what is Bichette's disease would be based on all of the different posts on the internet, encyclopedias, could be just from medical literature, could be from notes even. If someone created a large language model that was just from the medical um, work that we did say at our hospital or another hospital. And so again, just to really consolidate it, a large language model is a just way of taking all of the internet and encyclopedias use of words and saying, when asked this question, what is the most likely response that I'm supposed to put out based on everything else that exists? So it's not figuring that out as it goes. It's not coming up with an answer based on the scientific underpinnings of how Bichette's disease might work. It doesn't know molecular biology or you know biophysics. It is honestly just saying, here's what I heard from the internet. Um, which brings with it a lot of potential downsides as well, um, but is also gets you most of the way to your answer um, as opposed to just putting it into a Google search bar, which I do try to remind people, uh, ChatGPT is not a search engine. So we have to think about it a little differently. Yeah. And I love your description of that because a lot of what you were saying um, you know, like it takes a lot of information, condenses it, puts it into a matrices. Like in a way, that's what we subtly do in emergency medicine all the time. Like I feel this way a lot when I read a triage note and it's like, you know, 40 year old Hispanic female with a history of gallstones presents with right upper quadrant pain with nausea, has pain in her right upper quadrant pain. Gallbladder is still in, you know, like it's kind of the same um, algorithm. And then it's, you know, taken out obviously into uh, this, you know, AI platform. Um, and, and you guys do an amazing job in the article actually talking about some of the issues, like, like you said, like it doesn't, uh, have the sophistication of say a human, it literally just finds what's out there. So you have to take it with a grain of salt, but, um, to, to pivot, like, I guess we'll, we'll give this one to John. Um, how do you think, so knowing what a large language model is now, 
how do you think it is currently being used in emergency medicine and obviously super new um, from what you've seen so far? Yeah, great question. I, I think the, the core of it comes into a couple different categories. One is a clinical decision support tool. Um, another use is communication. Um, we can also use it for medical education. There are some research uses, and I think there's some administrative functions, and I'll just kind of dive into each one. A clinical decision support tool, we've talked about the example with Bichette's disease, finding information, but also finding out how that affects other aspects of the patient's care, or their current medicine, and able to extract information and how that comes together. With communication, this is a, a really interesting component. You think of all the notes and the drafts and the things that you have to do. And so uh, Doximity's actually kind of dove into this with their own version called DocsGBT, and the whole purpose of it is, is forms. And so they have ways to draft um, referral letters or, you know, if someone doesn't get um, to, to handle like billing disputes, work and school excuses, letters of recommendation. Um, in the ER specifically, you know, we can think about things like discharge summaries and and uh, specific patient education that's helpful for them. Uh, along the education side um, for, our, for ourselves, uh, it's able to build um, interactive learning tools such as like flashcards or quizzes that we can use to augment our own education or to teach medical students or residents. So like, some really interesting tools there. And then with um, medical research, uh, we can use it for literature reviews. We can use it to collaborate information. Um, we can use it to write grant proposals. Um, Christian uh, is leading an effort right now where we're looking at a bunch of different articles and you know, we go through it and we say, here's how I think this can work together and here's how maybe we need to do it separately. And he can he can talk more about that, but it's a it's a collaborative tool that we're working together to actually do research. And so that that's that's a really interesting use. Um, particularly when you think about you know asynchronous use within a within a faculty or like a multi-center study. And then on the admin side, um, you know, that we always have the tricky part about finding times for meetings or, or, or setting a goal and how we're going to do that and then drafting emails and memos and things along those lines. So those are some uh, current uses um, that folks have, have started to dive into. John, I think those are some great um, examples. I think one of the important things to remember for this, again, is that it's a language model. So good use cases and the ways in which people are using it right now are um, around, you know, produce producing or understanding or summarizing, I shouldn't say understanding, summarizing writing, like, you know, all of someone's outpatient records and experiences or what's in this journal article, et cetera. It's pretty good at that. Um, and it's pretty good at content generation, like making stuff and writing things. Whether or not those are true is another question. Um, but yeah, a lot of people's jobs are rote um, production of material and insurance claims in medicine and um, trying to get billing elements done. So a lot of people are looking and saying, what are some of these rote human things that involve language? And what are the ways in which a large language model can help us with that? Of course, there are also beginning to be some edge cases where people are using large language models to do non-language stuff. But, you know, for the point of today's conversation, we'll um, we'll stick to what it's so far like, you know, it's not FDA approved, but I want to be like, it's, it's uh, you know, approved for these uses as of right now. And off-label use uh, is something we can talk about a little later, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, and and what I found is um is that it's excellent for highly objective 
work. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned I'm in the informatics space as well. So like editing code, it's fantastic for. And I do not want to, uh, you know, I do not think personally, although I'm sure people listening to this podcast will be thinking too, that a lot of people are like, is this coming for our jobs? Quite honestly, with how good it is at rote coding and how good coders have been for so long of labeling their data and, you know, the entire wealth of knowledge that is in GitHub. Um, it's really good at coding and can really like up your game there and make accessible uh, things to people that um, otherwise took a lot, a lot of education. Still, people need to do that, but medicine is a slightly different beast and is, you know, uh, loath to just say the art and science of medicine, but there's some nuances to what we do that make it, you know, potentially not as good of a solution uh, for our work, but it is really good at some of that road stuff. Like you're saying, coding is wild. It's, it's fun. Yeah, it's almost like you have an amazing Wikipedia that targets your exact question right at your hands is how I think about it. And which is why I'm like, oh, Bichette's, I remember very little about it. But then, you know, I tease out like, tell me about Bichette's, by the way, what happens in someone has um, chest pain with some like potential differentials. And here's the medications I think are suspicious as well that could maybe be impacting this. So what I've what I've come out in the art of humans in medicine is actually finding out the relevant inputs so that you can direct a engine like a large language model to help you summarize, you know, condense a lot of information that's beyond what's, you know, immediately accessible in your head about something you haven't thought about in a while. Um, but then that input, like the talking to the patient, teasing out what's relevant, what's um, irrelevant, the pertinent positives and pertinent negatives, as you will, um, is still very much uh, human. Uh, and again, I don't, I don't, I'm with you. I don't think we'll ever kind of come for our jobs, quote unquote. The one thing I thought was funny that people said that your discussion made me think of is people say it's like having a great intern, um, like chat GPT is like, you're not going to, it's like the trust, but verify for some of the like deep knowledge, but they can get a lot of things and tasks done. So it's like, everybody got, everybody got, um, a great, uh, intern, uh, on their, on their team with chat GPT, but like a research assistant type of intern and not like an intern in residency. I'm sure there'll be some confusion there. I think this is a really good discussion on like how it is used. Um, I would love you guys' thoughts on how it should be used. And again, kind of to cue the article, um, you go through what John was just talking about, like the pros and cons of using large language model, um, like ChatGBT for like clinical decision support, for patient education, for educating. Like you guys do a fantastic job breaking that down. So I encourage everyone to go look at the table. Um, I would love to hear how you guys think it should be used um, or where it should be optimally developed because we're very much on the kind of cutting edge of this. So I think knowing where it could go um, helps us cue how we integrate it into our workflows and training. I'm loath to be like, the world is our oyster or like, you know, horizon is so great in this, but it really is in many ways. Um, I, you know, I'll only be able to give a couple of examples of some of what I think are the good uses. There's also some people who I think are wonderful um, online and in the emergency medicine space, like Graham Walker, who thinks a lot about this and has some good like LinkedIn posts about um, what he sees as some of the good use cases. Um, and I think some of the really good use cases aren't necessarily what we might have anticipated. Um, we talked about a bunch of ways it's currently being used that I think is good. I think um, one of the things that one of my colleagues brought up recently at SAM at the uh, research conference was, um, you know, there's 
elements of just being able to do the operational work and get some of the things done that are not part of what physicians a want or are trained to be doing. So that goes to John's point of like documentation completion, like autocomplete of filling out, you know, the requisition for a, you know, wheelchair or for crutches that just came up like yesterday for me there, you know, that does not need me to like write my name, write the person's name and the indication necessarily. Um, there's also good, just the ability to translate um, discharge uh, notes in a way that's meaningful. Um, a lot of people were familiar with the first time a neural network was added to translation a few years ago that increased the like accuracy of language translation. But we in the emergency medicine see lots of people from lots of different places with lots of different reading levels as well. And the ability to try to get something that can actually help them navigate an otherwise quite gray area is a pretty good use of, again, a language model um, and the ability to predict what was meant and then get an output the way it should be. Um, I think one of the uh, you know other good areas, though, to sort of get into a little bit of the philosophy of it is there's a real opportunity to think about the things, the unknown unknowns. Um, you know, I don't know whether I would use it personally yet as like a differential builder, but as opposed to trying to diagnose, which is one of the problems and solutions a lot of us think about first with AI and machine learning and emergency medicine, like, oh, just tell me what the problem is. Why not flip the script a little bit and say, in what ways can this help me avoid the biases I was already bringing to this patient encounter? What are some of the other things that could be going on? And then I can answer them on my own or, or think about them. Um, there's, there's good ways in which asking a tool to produce a thing, anything, sort of all the options that could be going on with this thing um, are really underutilized version of this in my mind. Uh, difficult conversations came up in one of the, the blogs that I was reading. Uh, John might know more who exactly it was, but um, the thinking through how you might navigate um, a difficult conversation, either with family members of someone who might have passed away, um, being able to think empathetically is sometimes something that is hard to do in real time. And we don't have a lot of great just-in-time resources to do such a complicated language intensive, emotional intensive work. Um, to that, some people feel really, I'm not really sure whether they feel threatened, they feel skeptical about letting technology be empathetic. But I think we all know that there are skills and there are ways to, things to avoid saying, and there's ways to go about delivering um, bad news or having difficult conversations. And if you use this tool to come up with a mock conversation or to practice how you might handle something, um, that's a really interesting and I would say novel way to do something that's rare, comes up you know, hopefully infrequently in your practice, and you might take a lot of baggage to that interaction with you. So those are a couple of the good examples. Maybe John has even more, but some of these ways of augmenting, I guess, is, is the word, if I had to get give one word that would unify the good uses, is to sort of augment our capabilities or remove some of the like tedious or um, non-thoughtful -thought, uh, processes from our work, such that we can actually be more present in the human elements of care um, and healthcare delivery. Yeah, that's really beautiful. It's like, what can we do to offload the things that um, aren't unique to being a doctor so we can do the the doctory bits, really? Um, and I think you I think you touch on something uh, pretty awesome also, which is the um, discussion of like difficult conversations. Like I, I struggle with that one as well because I know people are using it. 
um, for training. And I mean, we can all rewind back to like having standardized patients in med school and it's super awkward, but I mean, this offers you an ability to tell, you know, ChatGBT, like pretend you're a patient's wife. Um, I am the doctor and, you know, we're having this conversation, here's the situation and you can play it out. So it's a mental training for you yourself. And then you can go and tell, um, it to say, all right, look at the conversation. You are now like a world renowned psychologist. Please give me the pros and cons of this conversation and how I responded. And it tells you. Um, so it gives you an objective, I think, reflection, which is difficult for us to do, um, you know, introspectively sometimes just as people, but I think improves who we are as people when we're at the bedside, et cetera. So it's a, an interesting exercise, um, that I was, you know, thrilled to hear you just mentioned. Um, and so, so kind of to close this out, I think, um, a big part of why I wanted to feature this is I, I think like ChatGPT, large language models, et cetera, are inevitable, whether we want it or not in healthcare. Um, you guys do a really good job, like I said, detailing the pros and cons. I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, like Epic EHR has already partnered with uh, Microsoft slash OpenAI um, to integrate GPT into like in-basket messages and also like data analytics. So like we know it's coming. So I would love to hear some kind of closing pearls and tips for your typical frontline ER doctor. Because regardless of if it's today or in 10 years, like we are all going to be using this in some way, shape or form in our practice. Yeah, I'd love to tackle that one. And, and I think that, as you guys mentioned, we, we want to keep the human aspect. There is some concern like, oh, you know, this, we're going to be replaced. And I think the important thing is saying, what, what are the administrative things, that, the burden sides that, you know, that, that it can fix for us? Well, we focus on on the on the human side, and I and and right now we see different ways that people are taking this. Like right now, ChatGPT is banned in Italy, and doctors in Perth, Australia, are not able to use it. And there's interesting reasons put for this, as to with like privacy and data use, and, and and you know it's a big scary thing, and they want some guardrails. And and I totally get that, but as as you mentioned, Amy, it, it is going to be everywhere. And so, you know, some some pearls, Christian earlier mentioned, you know, we, we should think of it as like having like a really great intern. The, the other the other way I've kind of thought about it is it's, you know, it's it's having a consultant. It's a research. It's a tool. It's a way we do our work. You know, you may call someone from another specialty, ask them about a patient. They may give you awesome information, but ultimately it's up to you to take that information, your evaluation of the patient, your knowledge and make your decision. And so that's that's one way to look at it. Um, we have what's called the hallucination problem, where AI gives very confident answers, but maybe it's confidently inaccurate a lot of times, and that's something that that we need to be aware of. And so we need to think of it as an adjunct to our work and a digital consultant. Um, but but we're in a situation where we need to to make the the final call. And so it's interesting to look at groups that are starting to address this, like. Um, the American Medical Informatics Association has started to say, hey, rather than, you know, an outright ban, let's let's set up some guardrails or set up some best practices. And so I, I think overall, thinking of it as a language tool, thinking of it as a way to to do, you know, to improve to improve our care, but also understanding that, you know, ChatGBT is really good at saying this answer is updated as of September 2021, and 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 knowing that information that's come out beyond that is not going to be part of that answer. So understanding the um, limitations as far as what's available, the time frame, um, and 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 the available expertise. I think things like that are going to help us make better decisions, but also use it in a way to help our patients. I think the pearl. I, I love what John said, and and I have to 
just say that John has thought more than like most people about uh, many of the innovative technologies that are available. He is, he is wonderful in his brain for sort of uh, scoping the pros and cons of these and the p growth potential is, is amazing to uh, amazing to hear. Um, like Pearl for me is really um, like most of medical education and most even Google searches or social media, you know, critical appraisal is a big part of what we do. And so trusting but verifying using any of these tools in life um, in the history of science approach, uh, people were worried when the printing press was around that universities would be gone, that people weren't going to go and talk about uh, material in the classroom. They would just read it and then what happens if people were being misinformed and journals just started publishing whatever and you then had guilds and then you have the beginning of science and of medical science and snake oil and people selling false things and people then not knowing where uh, what's true and what works and what doesn't and that's where the AMA came from and various parts of our medical establishment now uh, and the only reason I mentioned all this is just to say that historically we have faced these problems before um, the pearls are really that um, I am very proud of emergency physicians and their adaptability their ability to use new technologies and to try to do it in a way that's authentic and great for the care of our patients um, and so I implore everyone to use it in a way that is exploratory, um, that comes with a skeptical eye, much like when we read any journal article. And to your point earlier, like it's a lot of what we do already. I don't believe that LLMs or machine learning is any different than a lot of the predictive modeling work we do or using like, you know, PCARN or other decision tools. Um, we just have to start being um, curious and careful and skeptical in the right ways such that we will learn how to incorporate it into practice in a way that's useful to us and our patients. Um, so my pearl is totally not a pearl, but it's really a like, I honestly keep doing what we're doing and please just don't fall into the fallacy of thinking this is a panacea or going to like just make medicine, you know, great again, for lack of a better word. Um, it's <laughs> gonna, it's gonna, it's just, it's a thing like everything else that has come before it. And, and we can, um, we can hopefully improve our practice there. Yeah. But I have to say you guys are definitely on the cutting edge of this. Um, and that's wonderful we'll to see. And I, I echo kind of what both of you had said, like ER doctors are highly adaptable. We're super open-minded. Like we tend to just try new things because we can, or maybe because we have to sometimes. So um, I thought this was a, an awesome conversation, hopefully getting people to to check it out and obviously um, read the article in ASAP now. So Christian, John, um, and then Nick for the article, wanted to say thank you guys so much for writing this and for taking the time to discuss. Thank you so much for having us. This was an absolute blast. Um, yeah. Obviously, people should feel welcome to reach out with questions and continue the conversation uh, from here. Yeah, thank you so much, Amy. And ASAP now. It's that time of year again. It is ASEP Scientific Assembly that is right around the corner. And this year, it's in Philadelphia. And for the first time ever, those who register for all four days of ASEP 23 will receive virtual ASEP 23 for free. And that means that you can be there for the lectures, but you can also reference the lectures on demand afterwards for 12 months. If you say decide to spend your time enjoying Philly, learning some history, eating some cheesesteaks, and catching up with friends around the country. After all, it is the city of brotherly love. Save $50 on registration with promo code NOWCAST at asep.org slash ASEP23. And again, that promo code is NOWCAST.
Hey everyone at Ace Up Now Now Cast. I am very pleased to be joined by a special guest with a super interesting story. We have here joining us Dr. Nathan Jones, MD, an emergency medicine doctor in Springfield, Illinois, who will be part of a year-long study that is known as CHAPIA, or Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog. Now, if you've never heard about it, you will surely have heard of its sponsor, NASA. So he is doing a very interesting simulation, year-long mission, where they are trying to figure out what it is that happens when you have a mission in Mars. So I'll let Dr. Jones talk more about that. But Nathan, thank you so much for making the time to chat with us in the midst of your, uh, your training, actually, for this mission. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you so much. Now, so I alluded a little bit to what this mission is, but first tell us about yourself and how in the world did you get involved with this? Yeah, so I've kind of always had a, a bit of a sense of adventure as many emergency physicians do. Uh, what drew me to medicine in the first place was um, interest in international medical missions. So I've been doing those since I was about 10 years old. And that's probably what propelled me into medicine in general, and especially in emergency medicine, because I wanted to continue uh, doing that. And so just going to places where really no one was going and doing things no one was really doing was something from the time that I was young. And then um, on into emergency medicine, I have experience with light medicine, um, the tactical EMS. I have um, board certification in EMS in addition to EM. And uh, so, you know, always just kind of uh, doing uh, things that involve even more decision-making and problem-solving with uh, reduced uh, amounts of equipment and supplies has always been something that's interested me. Now, so you are the missions medical officer. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, so we really don't have uh, a good idea just yet, or they haven't really informed me just all what uh, that will entail as far as uh, what kinds of duties will be specific to being the medical officer. I think that if you look at uh, research out there that has been done, there's quite a bit, um, you know, from a NASA standpoint that says that the further out they go, the more interested in having a medical professional as part of the team is going to be. And uh, it'll be more important to the actual uh, crew members as well. They'll have to have multi uh, functions. So in other words, they'll have to function as just a regular crew member and not just solely as a medical officer. But I do think it, it looks like, you know, from research that's been done that there are uh, definite interests in having a medical officer on board. Yeah, I imagine that you can bring a lot of handy skills that happen when you're trapped <laughs> with limited resources and something medical happens. Now, um, I was reading about, you know, how you got involved with this experience and everyone says you just saw like an advertisement. Like, is that really true? Like, did you just, you know, open up Google one day and it had a targeted ad of, hey, want to do this interesting NASA Mars mission? Yeah, essentially, um, I was uh, nights only for about six years. I actually left it just this last fall in preparation for this mission, actually. And um, I've never been a person who spent much time watching television and so, you know, just finding things to do at night, you know, on your nights off sometimes was always interesting. And I've always been kind of into tech. And I think I was uh, just kind of perusing the tech 
websites and came across an article and it literally said, do you want to go to Mars? And it kind of piqued my interest. I clicked on it and, uh, you know, there's a little bit more backstory too, but just in its simplest form, that's probably it. I, I feel like this is like such a classic nocturnist story. Like, you know, I was just staying awake because this is normally what I do. And I was Googling around, except most people end up, you know, reading about sports or, you know, getting too involved in Twitter. <laughs> and you got into a NASA, uh, a NASA mission. So that's awesome. What's your plan with like your clinical duties and personal life? My understanding is this is a year long mission where you guys live in a 3D printed environment that you're not allowed to leave um, that's simulating the mission to Mars. Like how does that layer in with life? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually have a wife and three kids. And so I think that's going to be the most difficult part about it. Um, thankfully, and, and somewhat unfortunately, you know, in medicine, we oftentimes have a lot of, um, you know, we're compensated well, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of challenges that we go through that most people will never have to contend with. You know, you miss so many nights, weekends, holidays uh, with family and friends that, you know, really it set me up well uh, for an experience like this because, you know, they're kind of used to doing those things, uh, you know, on their own. Uh, they're used to be missing a lot of the sports. And like I said, that's kind of a blessing and it's kind of sad too. But, you know, um, the fact that uh, I'm emergency medicine means that I don't have a patient load that is coming to see me on a daily basis, or at least I hope not, you know, um, we all have those frequent flyers, but, uh, you know, I do have, uh, the, the blessing of having a group that I can step out of and come back to after the mission is completed. And I think that's something that lends well for emergency medicine doctors who are interested in doing this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so you have already started, like my understanding is you're in Houston right now doing the training, like any highlights of the experience so far that you're able to share with us? Yeah, actually, I'm just about to leave there. I haven't left just yet. But, um, uh, you know, there's already been quite a few uh, interactions uh, that we've had through the interview process and, and uh, some uh, minimal training so far. And it's just been really exciting to see uh, the other crew members uh, to get to know them and uh, all the NASA personnel and all their expertise, they've just been really neat to get to meet them. Yeah. Do they, do they make you like learn the like physiology and everything or, or are they kind of like, Hey, push this button if you're in trouble? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, we'll have about a month of training and that's quite a bit of uh, things we're going to be learning of the emergency procedures and those sort of things. Um, there are, uh, quite a few different tasks that I think we'll all learn in general. And I think that's probably actually going to be the majority of them. I am taking like a aerospace uh, medical textbook uh, to uh, be able to reference if needed. Uh, it's, it's kind of fortunate because NASA actually has a whole team of people, you know, with mission control that are available if, if needed for any medical attention. Oh, very cool. So you will, in a way, have like a ground control and get to act as the, you know, eyes and ears, just a lot, I mean, a lot of ways like EMS, like, so I know you have that training. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, that'll come in helpful for this sort of mission. Yeah. I, I imagine you guys have like some kind of like personal fitness criteria too. Like, I mean, I would guess, but are they doing any of that during training? Yeah. And I can't speak to exactly what uh, NASA's requirements are for that because uh, I'm not really sure what the 
you know, specific requirements are. They, they do ask you, you know, at some point, as you can imagine, you know, what your fitness routine is, but they never specified, you know, any, any requirements to me uh, prior to being selected. Once we start the mission, it will be pretty well regulated what our actual um, uh, daily routine is, including the amount of food that we eat and uh, the specific exercise regimen. So yeah. people tend to need to be yeah. pretty fit to, to do something like this. Yeah, I imagine so. I'm like, I don't think they'll, uh, <laughs> I don't think we can just send anyone into Mars. So I imagine there's a, there's a lot of criteria when it comes to, you know, even a simulation for it. So, so this has been super interesting. Like I said, I um, immediately had peaked interest when I, you know, heard about the experience you were having, like uh, just to kind of close out what makes an ER doctor such a great fit for something like this? Like beyond just the, you know, the fact that we're shift work so we can kind of pop in and then pop back out. Like, I feel like you alluded to this, like the sense of adventure and everything. What's your opinion on that? I think it's just the way that we solve problems in general. Um, and, you know, part of what drew me to emergency medicine was just, I like to solve problems. I, uh, my kids would tell you, if you'd ask me why NASA picked me, they would tell you that's because I can fix about anything. And I think that's true for a lot of emergency medicine people. We uh, take limited resources, limited information, and we find ways to solve problems. And that's really, in a nutshell, what we do in emergency medicine. And I think that uh, particularly translates well into uh, a job like this. You know, even even like the uh, training that we do with simulations and and those sorts of things in emergency medicine training lends very well to this sort of thing, just the way we solve problems. Yeah. I mean, this is a awesome story to hear. It's like, not only are we MacGyvers in the hospital, but apparently out and about in, uh, in other things too. So I want to say thank you again, Nathan, so much for sharing your time with us and, you know, best of luck. I know you're about to, to start the mission. Thank you so much and have a good day. I loved covering these topics this month. So it's a little different than some of our usual content, but it is still absolutely something you can take to your next shift. Obviously with ChatGPT, you can integrate it into your next workflow just to see how you like it and explore and play. And with Dr. Jones's feature, hey, if you click around a little too much on a slow night shift, maybe you also will find yourself on a space mission. Now, as usual, we've got tons of more coverage in this month's magazine sitting in your mailbox. First, I wanted to highlight that we have a fantastic interview from LAC with our very own Dr. Dark and two ER doctors who were just elected to their state legislature. We also have a couple articles talking empathy and burnout, all very important topics. And we talk about bringing steroids back for pneumonia from Dr. Westerfer. And of course, much, much more. So lots for you to check out. This episode actually marks my year anniversary for ASAP Nowcast. And I've loved hearing from all of you on what content you'd like to hear and helping to evolve the podcast. So as always, tweet us if you have an idea at ASAPNow or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. And that's it for right now. So thanks you guys again for joining us. 